This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we're breaking down AppLovin. It's a business you may not recognize, but have likely interacted with. Founded in 2012, AppLovin provides a platform for developers to market and monetize their mobile apps. The business also owns some of the most popular mobile games in the world, which they use to feed richer data into their software platform. To help break down the business, I'm joined by its CEO and co-founder, Adam Farugi. Please enjoy this breakdown of AppLovin. So Adam, for this business, I think a bit of a history lesson is probably the right place to begin. I'm fascinated by the path that this business has taken over time. And so I'd love to rewind all the way back to what you think is the most appropriate seedling, the first idea, first risk taken by you and the founding team. How did this whole thing begin? We started the business in really 2010. And prior to that, I had a couple of successful advertising platforms on desktop. We actually built an advertising platform for web app developers in 2008, 2009, early days of the Facebook app ecosystem. So when I came to Palo Alto to start AppLovin, I didn't want to get into advertising, actually. We wanted to build apps, and we started building a couple mobile apps. Back then, when we wanted to grow them, there was only one path. You had to go beg the app stores to go get a feature, and there was no marketing platform built really for the app developer. So even though I didn't want to get back into advertising, knew how to do it and saw a really big opportunity. And we did have a guess, at least back then, our hypothesis was this app store was going to become really big. You started seeing just massive amounts of consumption, even though the quality of content was pretty weak. So we felt like building a marketing platform for that app developer could be a really big business. We ended up pivoting off the apps. And in 2012, in Q1, we launched the first version of our marketing platform on Android. And really just started having app developers flock to us and started seeing month over month growth that was pretty phenomenal. With that, we knew we were on the right track and we were going to run this business and see how far it could take us. From there, we never really have wavered at all. Over the last decade, we've been hyper-focused on expanding out the tool set to help app developers grow their business. In late 2012, I went out to raise funding and bring on VCs. I felt like bringing on VCs would give us credibility and help us hire more folks to the team. We had a good core group. It was about 10 to 12, mostly all engineering at the start. But we couldn't raise VC capital. Back then, if you walked into VC and said you were ad tech or games, and certainly both, none of that was a common theme that investors were interested in investing in. So we ended up pivoting off of that, built the business to be profitable. We were profitable by the end of the year so we could fund it ourselves. And then I brought in some angels that were friends, and that was our seed funding effectively, brought in angels, advisors, some of our own capital. And really from there on in, we started growing the business. It's very notable. One of the things that pops out when you look at the company, or I guess what we call the cap table in the private market world, is that you personally own a huge percent of the business, much more so than you would see for a business of this size if it was heavily VC-backed. It's an interesting twist of fate that the difficulty of funding early on has probably led to a great outcome, although I'm sure it was very hard along the way. How would you sum that interaction phase up? Why didn't they like games and ad tech back in 2012? What was it that they were reacting against? I think games weren't known. And really, games with the expansion of mobile have become something entirely different. Casual gaming, which mobile really unlocked, is gaming for everyone. You've got a couple billion players, and that's the whole world. Prior to that, in the early 2000s, you had this vision of a gamer being the teenager in a basement playing 10 hours a day. And certainly core and console type games are a big thing still today. But that was what people thought about with gaming. So mobile gaming wasn't really understood. We were really positioned as ad tech. And ad tech back then, you had some companies that had gone public and really flamed out in really bad ways. And they were selling to brands and arbitraging those businesses. And investors had the sense that independent ad tech companies couldn't build a sustainable and long-term growing business because of the fact pattern of the companies that they'd seen. 
it was a bad place to go. But you're right. In hindsight, it worked out to our benefit. We saw a lot of companies that as mobile started maturing, raising substantial amounts of money from the same VCs that had turned us down in our category. But those companies end up really seeing a path to capital being a path to hiring and then raising your next round and your next round. We were focused on funding ourselves. So every step of the way, we focused on automation and build product first, keep the team lean, keep the business profitable and scale organically. Whereas our peers were focused on hire people, hire people, hire people because they could because the funding was there. That's super dilutive, but that also takes your focus off of building the best product in a market that ended up being hyper-competitive. So we lasted well past a lot of those companies. And in hindsight, that was a huge gift that we were given not to be able to raise capital in the early days. I'd love, again, to go back to those early days to really understand the first job that you did for a customer. So everyone understands the proliferation of apps. Obviously, that was an amazing wave or tailwind that you've continued to ride since the earliest days, more and more apps being developed for the major app stores. But what did it feel like back then trying to get a new app that you've developed as a developer in front of people to download, install, start using, hopefully make some money? What was the scene like back then? And what was it that you were doing for those people at the very start? It was super basic. It's hard to remember back then because the apps today are so pretty, but the popular apps were the flashlight, the fart button, and birthday calendar. Like It was basic utilities. And these developers, no one was going to pay for these types of products. They needed an advertising-supported model. And there were two ways they ended up coming onto a platform like ours. One, they wanted ads in their app in order to monetize their audience. So we started getting relationships coming in. That way, we were sending out emails blind to the App Store emails you start seeing this trend of everyone's responding. Everyone wants a path to make more money. So we knew we were onto something there. And on the other side, obviously, once we get that supply, we need to be able to fill it with demand to start matchmaking the developer to the audience. The platform itself in 2012 was super basic. Any type of advertisement was better than nothing because it was completely catered to the app developer. We sold them on an install basis, whereas traditional marketing models sold them on a cost per thousand impressions basis. So they came to us. They didn't have to be treated like a brand. They were treated as a performance customer. We drove them installs. They paid what they felt like they could pay, and the system took care of the rest. That's what we knew we were on to something because every single month organically with really no BD team, we had a lot of developers coming to our platform on their own. Talk to me about the challenges early on of making sure to build a platform and a software product versus becoming like an advertising or marketing agency that was early and did a great job in this area. Yeah, this is an important point because I think people get tripped up as to why some ad tech companies call themselves software and traditional ad tech companies are labeled as something different. I think the key difference is traditional ad tech company is in the business of selling a brand and they're selling contracts. They're selling IOs. They get a million dollars to sell eyeballs and they go and arbitrage it. But there's no consistency to the business. In our business model, we wanted to sell performance. Advertiser spends $1,000 and they know that they're going to make $1,000 back in 30 days. They'll do that forever. That's just a very simple business model to understand. And what makes ad tech much more software-like and why it's labeled as software today across a lot of the companies is that focus on performance. Make it so that your customer isn't being sold. So they need the platform just as much as the platform needs them because everything is automated. Everything is performant. That was really the evolution of advertising over the last decade, certainly in mobile app advertising, where everything became performance-based. We originally felt like some of our business would be sales-driven, some of our business would be performance-based. But as we started trying to sell, we realized it's just a really hard business model. You're convincing customers to spend, but you can't give them any proof that the dollars spent was successfully spent. That game wasn't a long-term one that we wanted to play. And then we shifted everything over to a no-sales strategy. We actually didn't hire a sales force by design up until really a year ago. So we scaled our business much more organically and developer-centric and sold only something very simple. Developers plug in, they share data, they can buy advertising completely on a performance basis where the dollars that they spend get measurable results against them within the boundaries of the goals that they set. And that becomes very recurrent. So if I were to go inside of AppLove and, and really understand from the start and then through to today, what the major components of this platform are, how do you think internally the pieces of the technology stack, if you will, and how they talk to each other or work together? There's a couple of key pieces. When an advertiser connects into our platform, we're a big data system. We've got tens of thousands of apps on the supply side and a bunch of advertisers on the other side. There's data going into the system. And that core part of the system that utilizes that data is the ad optimizer. And so that ad optimizer needs to have something to feed it. 
to be able to go and actually deliver a result for the advertiser. So you've got a dashboard, advertiser plugs in their app, they share data, and then they set up their campaigns and they price their goal. Typically, an advertiser will say, I want to spend $1,000. And in the first 24 hours, I want to generate $100 of revenue. Now the system knows the types of users it has to go find. In today's world, it's a lot different to 10 years ago where they would have gone and said, I want to spend $1,000 and I just want 250 installs. I'm willing to pay $4 an install. Today, the system takes care of pricing and backs into the advertiser's predefined goals. So the advertiser is dealing with an interface. They're getting analytics out of it. That The analytics show them with proof that what you wanted to spend and the goals that you had set as your target is actually achievable. And that's what the system is automating to optimize against every single day. And then that ends up scaling. On the other side, you've got the consumer experience, which around 2015, we altered from graphical representations of advertisements to fully video. Now the system is immersive video, full screen, high definition. And a lot of the advertisements also have playable ads if they're for a game developer where the game itself in some sort of preview mode is playable by the consumer before downloading it. That leads to much higher quality for that game developer because the consumers that do download have gotten a taste and they want more. I'd say those are the key components, analytics, ad optimizer, user interface, and the end user experience, the video advertisement and the playable. Maybe you could walk us through an example, picking a customer or something to make sure I understand the full nature of supply and demand in this case. Who would be the developer that you're facing? Who is seeing the advertisement and where? Is it in Facebook? What screens am I seeing it on? And how each of those components touches it would really bring it to life. Let's say one of my kids goes out and builds a solitaire app, super easy app to develop. No one's going to pay for a solitaire app. There's thousands of them on the app store. So step one, they go, okay, well, no one's going to pay. So I need to make revenue. Let me go put advertising in my app. They can go to multiple companies, Facebook, Google, AppLove, and, and others, or they can use one central solution to manage all the monetization solutions out there. And one of our core product offerings, Max, is the market's leading in-app monetization optimization solution for all these ad partners. So they come in and they go, I've heard of this Max solution. I'm going to embed this. That gives them access to an ad auction where they get Facebook, they get Google, they get AppLove, and they get Amazon and others. Now, when a user is playing a solitaire game, user finishes the level and they beat the game. In between that game and the next game, they can throw up an advertisement. User sees a full screen ad for something else that they're interested in. In that decisioning process, the Max auction would figure out which advertising company can pay me, the solitaire developer, my kid in this example, the most dollars for that ad impression. So if it's Facebook, Facebook shows the ad in my app. Google shows the ad in my app, or if it's AppLovin, then we're chosen. So if it's AppLovin, we're chosen. Then on the other side, we have advertisers to go fill that ad slot. And the system figures out what's the best advertisement to show that consumer at that moment. It goes, okay, I'm making money. Now I need to go find users. I'm only getting 10 installs a day. This is too small. They would go and say, okay, now I'm integrated into your max product offering. I now want to go find users. And they'd go to our app discovery product offering. They'd plug in their app and they'd go, I'm willing to spend $1,000 a day if I can get $100 a day back in ad revenue in the first 24 hours. System, take care of the rest. They'll upload their video advertisements, shows a solitaire app. Then our system will go and serve the advertisements for them in other apps. Might be a Word app. It might be a Merge app. It might be a Match 3 game. It might be a dating app. The system figures it out. Where are the users who are wanting to play this specific solitaire game? matches them up, prices them right, drives the audience, and the audience has to go yield $100 of revenue in that first 24 hours to make it happy in the audience that they're going and acquiring. So if you think about, I don't know what the right top of funnel thing is, maybe it's impressions or something. Where do most people interact, whether they know it or not, with AppLovin? Is there a platform or a space or a set of apps or something? What would be the big areas that consumers are seeing your work? Consumers themselves, a couple billion monthly consumers, are interfacing with us across billions of ads a day. Those ads are placed in apps, and we probably in-network have around 100,000 apps. App Store probably has about 5 million apps, let's call it. A lot of those are dead, though. If you download an app that has advertisements in it, it's very likely our solution is there. You can think of the App Store as this other walled garden, where if you think of Facebook as a walled garden of its own, and Google YouTube as a walled garden, well... The App Store itself has an immense audience that's consuming content every single day. When there are ads in those apps, it's very likely part of our solution is there. 
the part that the consumer would see would be in a video advertisement served by us if our solution was the highest monetizing for that app developer that was running that ad auction. If you think about the next major chapters, you walked us through the early years of realizing, okay, there's something to build here. There's a huge unserved audience, more apps and people wanting to market them, monetize them, et cetera. What do you consider the next couple key chapter headings, if you will, in the story so that we can start to get into what the platform and business looks like today? Where we are today, the system itself has gotten a lot more automated and expansive over the years. And the tools that we've been able to build out over the past few years of investment have just expanded the monetization opportunities for app developers and the marketing opportunities. In our last earnings call, we highlighted some of the futuristic new initiatives that we're currently working on today. We always feel like you put a stake in the ground, you start working on something today, it should contribute a couple of years down the road. Performance in the business today is defined by choices we made a couple of years ago. And all of our new initiatives really focus on two things. Expand the reach of the platform to the audience because we need to find more consumers for our advertisers. So one area that we felt like was tangential and quite interesting for our advertisers is connected TV devices. You've there also got a full screen video ad experience and it's not very performance-based. So it feels a lot like the mobile app ecosystem was 10 years ago. So we felt like huge audience could be additive to the audience that we have in mobile games and mobile apps. And if we can go advertise there, we can bring more audience to our advertisers. Okay, it makes sense to go invest there. The other area that we talked about we're focusing on is the implementation of blockchain and NFTs into games and being a solution that enables app developers to do that well. And if we can execute on that, that expands their monetization opportunity. The fundamental formula for growth in our business is as our partners are able to increase their lifetime value, they're able to increase their monetization. They can reinvest more dollars into user acquisition and grow their business. It's simple end of the day, but the inputs into that are really complicated. How do you get an app developer to make more from the same audience that they've got? If you can do that, they're going to be able to go find more audience. Do you consider still today the app developer to be your core customer? Yes, entirely. Entirely. And so the portion of the business where you own apps themselves, talk to me about the evolution of that portion of the business, how that grew out of the platform itself and how you determine strategy between those two sides of the business. We run those separately. In early 2018, we got into games ourselves. And it was a contentious decision because a lot of our customers at that time were app developers, game developers specifically. And they could certainly argue at the time we were getting in to compete with them. What we were actually doing was working with our own content to do two things. One was give ourselves a playground to better understand the ecosystem. So if we were going to increase monetization opportunities, we had our own testing pilot customers as ourselves. So it made it more capable for us to build better solutions. The Max Mediation platform, which today really has grown an immense amount and is helping developers of all kinds better monetize their audience, came from that. We saw a need in the market to better monetize our audience with advertising a more fair and robust ad auction, and we implemented it on our own traffic. The other need was we needed data into our ad tech platform. And a lot of advertising companies for years had been sharing data to the big walled gardens, but were not willing to share to an independent ad network. Data at any level similar to what they were willing to share to the walled gardens. And in order to evolve our ad platform and become better at providing an offering to our customers, we needed data. And so we said, okay, fine. If we can't get it from third parties, let's get it from ourselves. And we ended up accumulating a bunch of game studios, growing them. They're run entirely separately in our business. But really their purpose within us is we grow them, data feeds back into our system, and then that takes care of the rest. The third parties then are benefiting from that data coming in. And then as they share data into our system, the whole thing works better and better. That's where we've gone. Where we are as a business today is really fueled by our decisions a couple of years ago. Executing on that is why our software business on the ad tech side ended up having such immense growth where we went from 200 million to 670 last year to we're talking about 1.4 billion this year and 2 billion next year. That's been the evolution of our ad optimizer doing much more for customers because we learned how to build technology around data that we possessed ourselves and now get a compilation of data from ourselves and third parties. Can you say a bit more specifically about what those data are? What are the data streams that are valuable in as much detail as you're able to share? It's all over the place, but the interesting thing about machine learning systems are you can't really tell what's valuable 
within this technology because the computer is processing thousands and thousands of data points to figure out what's relevant to show a customer in whatever world you apply machine learning in. In our world, throwing more data at it is important. And so what we found is the data that we couldn't get from advertisers were deep engagement data in apps. If you end up downloading an app like Project Makeover today, you possibly play, you possibly don't. If you don't, that's not that interesting. But if you do and you engage 45 minutes a day, what you're doing in the game, when you're transacting in the game, how strong a player you are, how weak a player you are, these are all engagement data points. It's all contextual to you because we don't know who the person is. We just know that the device took certain actions within this app. That data coming back into our system is quite powerful in terms of understanding what kind of gamer is this device? And once you can understand that, hopefully the system can figure out the rest. But there's tons of data points that come in. Whereas three years ago, we had a smaller platform and we couldn't convince even the developers that were behind apps like Project Makeover that were customers of ours to share that level of data. Once we proved that it worked, now advertisers come in and share data with us, whether we own them or not, because the success of the platform is now defined in such an obvious way for the customer where if they share data into this pool, the machine learning can actually do its job and deliver them value back out. And that's truly what we learned the customers wanted. It wasn't clear to anyone in 2018 at the scale that we are today. It's clear that our system, if we're able to get data feedback from each customer, the system's better at performing on their behalf. And then around that, you've got tons of other data points, even something as simple as like, Someone's on an iPhone versus an Android. You need to know that to serve an advertisement. Someone's on a certain IP address that resolves to France. You need to know that to serve an advertisement in French versus English. There's data points that come in just from our presence in the ecosystem that allow us to actually do what we do. I'd love to play that back to you to make sure I understand because it's such an interesting flywheel, if I understand it correctly. So the app developer, as you said, is the focus. You've got this suite of tools from Max to app discovery to others that you've described. And the whole idea is you're a marketing suite for app developers that kind of do everything in the stack, but that by acquiring and operating studios and games, you started to build these richer profiles of users. You don't know who they are, but you know what's going on on the device that they're playing the game. And then that profile is making you better at advertising, targeting, all the things that would matter back on the app development side. Do I roughly have that right? Roughly. If you think about it in our solitary case example, if the solitaire company comes into our platform and shares nothing, then the ad tech has no idea what types of users are good for them. And the solitaire company comes in and says, here's a bunch of good users, find me more of these. That's what these machine learning systems are built to do. You've got a massive system of data, but each advertiser, the important data to share into that platform is here's my good users, find me more of those. And that's fundamentally core to any sort of performance ad tech at this point where technology has evolved to. Really, before having our own apps, we didn't get that. Once we got our own apps, we proved that that model works. We could build technology around, share data around good users, and the system can go find others. Other advertisers came to us for the same thing because they saw the performance was strong when they shared that kind of data. If you can give technology that sampling, these technology systems that built right on the right data platforms at scale can actually deliver value. So basically, the data is the means by which you can find more great people to buy your app in the first place, and then better target ads to the users that are good users so that everyone's making more money. It's an efficiency and optimization story at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. The end output is the consumer sees and discovers a more relevant ad. If you don't know what that device is interested in, then you serve them garbage. Consumers are seeing completely irrelevant advertising. It feels like spam. If that device is sharing information to the advertising companies, then the consumer's device is seeing relevant advertising. And if the relevant advertising becomes more and more relevant, they're actually discovering things that they otherwise wouldn't have discovered in the app store. Because the app store, frankly, itself, there's so many apps, like I said, 5 million apps. How do you parse what's a dead app or what's a hot app in these categories where if you go to the app store today and search for a word game, there's thousands of them. Like what's good, what's not? Well, the advertising if personal to that device level, can actually deliver something for the consumer to go discover that's really valuable for them. They'll go engage in something that's match right for them. Obviously, it's a pretty concentrated set of app stores where most of the action happens, most of the activity happens. How does App Love it interact with Android, with Apple? Like, What is the relationship between the companies and the products? 
We've got an interesting one because on the one hand, we're one of the biggest app developers ourselves. So we're a big customer of Apple and Google. On the other hand, the company on the other side, Google is a huge advertising company. They're a customer of ours on the advertising side. We're a Google Cloud customer. We're one of the big Google Cloud customers. So these relationships are super intertwined across all parts of the businesses. I do think we're in a uniquely positioned place because we've got so many different touch points to these companies that we can have really strong relationships. And one of the things that's helped us survive, I mean, one of the other reasons why we weren't able to raise VC funding originally is everyone's belief that eventually Facebook and Google and Amazon and Apple just bury all the independent advertising companies. End of the day, we're driving discovery. We're expanding the app store's consumption, which expands app store revenue. And we've got so many different touch points with these companies. We built our business to have really good relationships with these companies, not to have contentious competitive relationships. And by doing that, we're in a good place. We've got different relationship angles with each one of these. And that sets us up well to benefit in an ecosystem that, frankly, is difficult to navigate for a lot of newcomers. I remember someone, I can't remember if it was a board member, early investor at Snap, talking about how incredibly difficult it is to run an advertising-driven company subscale. And then obviously, once you reach scale, however that's defined, maybe the two best business models in the world in Facebook and Google at some serious scale. What have you learned about that? The importance of scale on both sides or all sides of the network, how you achieve it, what level it's at, what lessons have you learned about scale in advertising? It's 100% right. If you look at advertising companies that break out that Google's being the biggest at this point, one of the world's best businesses, the app store followed by the advertising business. These businesses are great businesses. When you're small, you're not going to get the same trust with advertisers. You don't get the same data sharing. By definition, then you can't build the same technology. The other thing is the ad auction itself is controlled by a couple companies at this point with us having the max auction, which is the largest in the marketplace in third-party app developers. It's very hard for new companies to come in not because we don't want to foster a competitive environment. We want as much competition in this auction as possible. It's just because developers don't want to embed new technologies. It's highly risky to add a new SDK to go out and perform the advertising solution. And SDK is effectively the code that an advertising company needs to put in an app, bundle it with the app for install on the device to serve a high-definition video advertisement in real time. If you don't have that, you can't perform at the same level as some of the incumbents. So the ecosystem itself has really become top heavy. There's a few companies that have broken out and gone to scale. Most of the companies are widely recognized, massive businesses. And then there's a couple of independents like us. And then the rest of the ecosystem tries to pick out a niche within that. But it's very hard to break out at this point. What do you think the major breakout points were for you in the business? If you had to identify the top one, two, three things whether that was a strategic decision or just something that happened that led to where you are today, what were those? We started early. We focused on the developer. We focused on automation. So really being product-centric was critical in our evolution, delivering something that the developer needed. We were innovating every step of the way, in large part ahead of our peers. And so that helped. And that was just because we got a head start. That was a useful advantage. And then we really executed on the max business model, which traditionally in our public filings, you don't really hear much about this max mediation product. And at small scale, again, it's not a compelling business. Nobody pays you to run the auction. You just run the auction as a service for the developers. And obviously, we've got a seat on our trading floor and every other player in the ecosystem has a seat on the trading floor. But at scale, that becomes a substantial economic opportunity. And so we've gone from something that didn't exist three years ago to the fastest growing solution in the market. Then we paired it with Mopub, which was traditionally seen as the biggest independent solution for app developers to monetize. It was owned by Twitter, and it was run as an independent subsidiary effectively within Twitter. Bringing that, pairing it with Max, created the biggest ad auction. So as you get to scale, the economics of these businesses become a lot more compelling. That was the other really strong strategic move that we've made over the past decade. Maybe talk me through the revenue of the business, how it breaks out between what I'll call software platform and apps, broadly speaking. What does that shake out today? And give me a general sense of the revenue model and the revenue mix. Games are reported on a gross basis. So we lose app store fees. And then obviously, there's a lot of costs around growing a mobile games business and user acquisition. There's a totally different margin profile. But the revenue itself is, we've talked about this year in terms of projected a bit over $2 billion. The software business, we projected around 135 to 15. So take a 14 midpoint to speak easily about it. These two by next year will end up pretty even. 
we started when we went public, I think it was around 14 or 15% of our revenue in 2020 was software. So the software side of the business is growing really quickly because we've executed on the games part of the business and really put the pieces together to nail what our vision was for the software piece. Underneath software, we have vast majority of the business traditionally, let's call it last year, has been app discovery where the customers are paying us for the user. That's where we generate our revenue. Vast, vast majority of the software revenue was that. And we'd acquired a company called Adjust that does mobile attribution and analytics. And that's a recurring SaaS offering that falls under software. As we talk about going forward, the max piece becomes substantially bigger as well in the different revenue streams that we'll highlight. Since you've got the unit that dominates right now on the software side being acquiring the user for the app developer, what does that literally look like? Back to the solitary example or something, just walk me through that, how the price is determined, how it's paid, when it's paid. In that example, you're going to spend $1,000 and you want to generate 10% return on ad spend in that first 24 hours. The system is going to figure out what to price it. You might say $1,000 CPI, one user is going to generate you $100. Okay, we found the world's best user. More likely than not, it'll land on something that averages like $2 CPI. So let's say $2 CPI, you got 500 customers, $1,000 for it. And on average, they yielded enough to get you to your $100 clip. Each one obviously has a different type of profile and systems are not going to precisely land users where every single user returns the same exact amount on the other side. So there's variance, but the averages should get you to $1,000 spent and $100 yielded. On our side, what we report as software revenue is the net of that. So of that 1,000, we're showing ads on other publisher apps we've got to pay out a substantial amount of that revenue. We don't talk about our margins publicly, but we don't actually operate our business to have a set margin goal either. It's very predictive. And if we ran at a 1% margin, we'd still operate the business because if we make a penny versus make nothing, you're still ahead. We are very good in an instance. We might make more than 50 cents. But the average is usually in advertising businesses land to the 20, 30% range. If you just use round math there and call it a quarter, your $1,000 pays out $750 to the publishers and you bank $250. That $250 is the reported software revenue. And the nice thing about the $250 is you no longer have material costs against it. You paid out the cost of serving the ads. The cost of serving the ads in terms of operational costs are nominal in the grand scheme of things at a business at the scale that we're at. So you've got $250, which gets dinged with some costs and then overhead of headcount, and then whatever's left flows through to the bottom line. So that software business, because of the way we report the revenue, is a net revenue reported business and it's very high margin. How do you think about margins in the gaming side and the utility of the gaming slash apps part of the business going forward? I totally understand the incredible unlock that it represented from a data standpoint, and I'm sure it constantly makes you better because you're operating on both sides of this whole ecosystem. But how do you think about the margins of it, the business proposition and the future value of that part of the franchise? We talked about it in the last earnings call. It was super strategic for a while. We had to go acquire a bunch of studios. We had to build out presence. We did that. We proved all the verticals in the ad tech business. And now we're getting tons of customers in. And when we started, the bulk of our data was our own. Now we have a mixture of data, but the vast majority of our data is customers sharing data with us and consumers allowing third parties to share data in order to serve a more relevant advertisement. Our strategic view has shifted quite dramatically. We were buying a studio maybe once every couple months. We haven't bought one in many months. And we've talked about how if it's strategic, you're going to go acquire it. And less strategic going forward, you're going to acquire less. Now, the business itself is a couple billion dollars scaled. So it's a very successful mobile gaming business across a ton of studios, a lot of talented individuals building games and with a massive pipeline of stuff into the future. So we're excited about the teams and the folks that we have, but it's not core in terms of integration into our business and really the strategic requirement that it was a couple of years ago as we saw this opportunity. Back to the developer as your core customer the universe of apps itself and how it's evolved. I'd love to learn a little bit there. You mentioned there's 5 million of them, but maybe some large percentage are dead or tiny. What is the taxonomy of apps today in the major app stores? And how has that changed over time? The one thing that's changed, gaming has become the majority of apps. It's a super fragmented ecosystem. There's huge mobile gaming companies, companies like Supercell and Activision King and Zynga, of course. So you've got these big brands, but there's tons of gaming companies that are two, three people that built a game or even one person that built a game, put it on the store and is generating pretty good money from it at this point. 
Some are generating millions of dollars a month with one, two people development teams. So gaming itself became a very commoditized and competitive marketing-driven category. If you look at the app store economics themselves, then companies like Sensor Tower and App Annie report how much IP is there in the ecosystem. The majority of that is in mobile games. So the vast majority of apps, the vast majority of transactional value that's in-app purchasing is driven by mobile games. Now, the biggest businesses, companies like Airbnb, DoorDash, these are utilities that we all need. We want to get a ride. We're on Uber. These are huge, huge companies that if you aggregated the sum value of companies that built market cap on the app stores, most of them came from the social networks, the messaging apps, and the utility apps. But those are categories where you end up very brand heavy. You've got a couple players in each market that become huge, and everyone else is irrelevant. If scale matters in advertising, scale truly matters in those categories. So that space, you end up with much limited players, more limited players, credit card transactional businesses that are massive. And mobile gaming is where you really need companies like us because you need discovery. If there are a thousand word apps on the app store, the thousand at first, even if they are innovative, can't get discovered unless they've got a discovery solution to pair them with. If you think about the future, you will thrive, whether it's gaming or other categories like it, on a fragmented supplier base, much more so than if everything became 10 apps that everyone uses. A hundred percent. This was actually one of the other beliefs back when we couldn't raise early stage capital was you had a company like Supercell and Candy Crush. And so Clash and Candy Crush come out. It wasn't clear to the world that gaming was going to be super fragmented. Marketing and discovery, really, you need that fragmentation. You've got, I don't know how many downloads Candy Crush has done over time, but probably over a billion. At some point, every single user at any age knows the app Candy Crush, and they've chosen to download it or not. So if Candy Crush was the only mobile game that existed, they wouldn't need discovery. A company like Amazon probably doesn't need that much discovery at this point. Consumers have chosen to download or not, but they certainly know the Amazon app is available for download in their region. In gaming and these categories that are super fragmented, discovery is the only reason the game developer can even survive. They have to market themselves. They have to understand and become experts at marketing, and they have to be able to monetize their audience. So that fragmentation is critical to our existence. It's also great for the consumer because it creates these ecosystems where something as simple as a word game can become much more immersive and interesting. As that category becomes more competitive, the developers themselves who become good add more resources, add more functionality into the game. And simple casual games can become really interesting. And that's why the audience has gone from a small set of the universe being gamers to most every single person. At this point, if you're on a plane or a train or whatever, you see almost every single person's on a game. How do you think about what means quality for digital marketing today? Obviously, you've got a very unique seat working with all sides of the ecosystem and digital marketing has become a critical function for just about every business on the planet. The teams that you've worked with, whether it's customers or people you've observed, what defines great in digital marketing today? I think the end consumer experience has to be strong. On the one hand, you've got privacy and you've got to respect the consumer's privacy. On the other hand, you want to deliver the consumer a relevant advertisement. And any company that understands how to utilize the data that's available to them to serve something more relevant is pushing the ecosystem forward and also pushing forward consumption behavior of the consumer. If you take advertising and strip it of that, it ends up like it was when I first started my career in the mid-2000s, a lot of spam. If you don't have relevancy in advertising, you end up with campaigns that are just generic. And most consumers get turned off by that advertising. Over time, as really, I think, Facebook created the most compelling ad platform that I've ever seen in my career, where when you go to Facebook, the advertisements in those ad slots feel a lot like content. They've made it so relevant that the consumer doesn't get bothered by seeing the advertisement. They're discovering new products that are relevant to them. That's really compelling. The better the advertising gets and the better that all the players and technology companies in the middle understand how to navigate the privacy sensitivities and the data available to them to make a relevant offering, the more content advertising becomes. And that's when you know you've won on all fronts where the consumer is getting the most value and the advertiser on the other side is getting the most value. Could you walk us through what it was like from your unique seat to see and navigate and digest all this stuff around privacy and targeting and data and shifts in standards in iOS and elsewhere? Because it seems like this was like an earthquake of sorts in this world. 
And like any earthquake, you collect the pieces and you adjust and you build new technology and you route around. But what did it feel like going through this period of time where there was a seismic shift in sort of the rules of the game? Yeah, I think it's been going on for years. I mean, you had GDPR come out, I think it was about four years ago, and the whole sector was freaked out. Everyone gets scared when something announces and then people figure out there's a way to get the consumer to understand what they're sharing and still deliver a good offering. The Apple change was no different. You had, at the time, people thinking 5% of consumers would opt into sharing information. Apple makes the consent model super clear. Now you have 35, 40% of consumers opting in to sharing information. And I think one of the challenges with privacy that always exists is it's very unclear to the consumer and also the regulators, what actually is being shared with every single platform on the other side. Just because something is available doesn't mean the technology company on the other side is collecting that information. Assuming they've got a business model that they clearly list what they're collecting in a privacy policy, most upstanding good companies are going out and collecting the bare minimum of what they need to deliver their service. Now, in this case, the service to the consumer is that relevancy. You've got a consumer who is on a mobile device who, if they share the basics, they're sharing an IP address and a mobile device ID that they can choose to turn off whenever they want to. That doesn't tie to an individual. But then if they're sharing their engagement behavioral data, they're able to discover better content. So that's the trade-off. If the consumer understands what I'm sharing has value back, which is I'm going to see something better on an advertisement and I may discover new content, or if I choose to shut off the sharing, I get really nothing relevant back, then I'm not going to discover new content. Which experience would I rather prefer? So I think one of the things that really occurs every time these privacy changes come into existence is everyone forgets what the handshake agreement is between consumer device and the other side. It's really to deliver the best experience possible back to the consumer in exchange for the bare minimum data that they're willing to share. Making that clear takes time. The regulators come out and change policy. The app stores come out and change policy. Everyone freaks out. Then people start understanding the ramifications of any decision that the consumer is going to make. And then things start working themselves out. Because at the end of the day, I don't think if given the choice, consumers want to see spam on their mobile device. That's not a great experience. How do you think about the proliferation of screens or interactive surfaces or whatever the hell you want to call them? You mentioned the TV screen being something that was maybe stuck 10 years ago in terms of the relevance of the served ads as something that's piqued your interest. How do you think about emerging platforms or very old platforms like TV as either competitive threats and or opportunities? How do you attack that problem? I think there are opportunities. The cool thing about cloud-based technologies and the proliferation of the app stores and really mobile now with the computer in our pockets everywhere we go is these are gateways to content and companies that are built in the modern era of technology can take their technology anywhere. The expectation has to be that there's going to be more innovation, more access to content cross-screen. That's inevitable. It's going to happen. Connected devices in every single access point to content and consumption are going to expand. That's the way the markets, all of them are going to go. It becomes an opportunity if the technology companies that are incumbents in one platform can understand how to go to the other platforms. You can see a lot of the same shows on the mobile device. It's not like I can't stream Netflix on my phone versus my connected TV device. Obviously, the screen size is bigger. But if I'm in an ad-supported experience, for us at least, it's a very similar experience. We look at that as opportunity, not threat, but it does require companies that are built in the modern era technology are inherently nimble so that they can take their core technology assets and port to these other platforms as they become opportunities. The players themselves are also different. So not only does it take technology movement, it also takes the ability to understand who the players are on each one of these platforms and navigate a business model in this new environment. When those pieces are unknown, that's when there's even more opportunity. It sounds like from reading all the business's history that this nimbleness is taken very seriously. And if you look at percent of revenue that something like GNA represents, it's tiny. It's like 2% or something crazy low. You mentioned this notion of always running lean, very product focused due to the funding history and probably philosophically. Talk me through how that works in practice. So what does it mean to be nimble to you? You sort of hate meetings and maybe have very few meetings. I'm really interested in the details of how you've had this nimble implementation at the corporate level. I think this stuff gets challenged as you get bigger and bigger. And certainly in public, these things start getting challenged as well. But at its core, our belief mostly was to make sure engineering rules the day. But then within engineering, we don't have a big product management layer. We want our engineers to be really smart at product management as well. They got to be their own product managers. 
they've got certainly business support and business is what sells their products. But if our engineers are building everything and understanding exactly what they need to go build because they understand the business side as well, they become very confident. And then we want entrepreneurial minds at every level of the company. If you end up pairing entrepreneurial mindset with that engineer that also is a product manager and understands what to build, you get someone who can take opportunity at every turn and make it into something that is successful. And so we've ended up with that. And the nice thing about that is by creating an atmosphere where you let that thrive, we've got really high employee retention. Most of our core people in all senior roles, at least now across business and engineering, have been here well over five years. Most of our core engineers are going on near their 10-year anniversary, which is as long as the company's been around. And you start getting that subject matter expertise where every year we're all still learning and we're learning together. By allowing that mindset and by allowing that opportunity where people can just build whatever they feel like they should go build for the opportunities in front of them, you get really talented people that can thrive. And that's what we've been able to foster in an environment around. I'm sure you have to do more meetings now that you're bigger, you're public, the business has more divisions, et cetera. <laughs> but talk me through meetings, the concept, when they're useful, when they're not, how you've learned to run them effectively or allow them effectively. I think they're not useful if there's too many people involved. And these meetings end up very circular, more so one person's presenting because they can't figure out what to do or they know what to do, but they want the pat on the back. Meetings are useful if they're strategic. There are certain things that you just have to meet behind closed doors about. If I'm talking to an investor, I've got to have a meeting on the calendar, like no way around that. If you're talking about something that's a strategic decision for a business and has pros and cons, but quite a bit of risk, you do want multiple minds to look at that type of an opportunity and explore and say you need a meeting. At the team level, what we really want people to do at our business is we want to empower people to just make their decisions and go with it. If it ever comes the case where I'm looped into a meeting and someone's unsure and we're sort of spinning, that's just a waste of everyone's time. I want the people on the team to realize not every decision has catastrophic downsides. What actually has catastrophic downsides? Maybe one a year. And those are the strategic discussions you have behind closed doors. Every other decision, you just got to make quickly, decide and move forward. And be proud of the decision you made and address it if it's wrong. If whatever path you chose is wrong, pivot and figure it out. Those are the types of managers we put in place, people who can decide quickly. And then we've also ended up with a very chat-centric culture where instead of having a meeting that takes everyone's time, we use a lot of asynchronous chat. So people will drop their thoughts or their decision into a chat and will start acting. And that lets everyone else catch up on their own versus taking up calendar time across the Oregon where you don't know who actually needed involvement or not. It seems from, again, looking at the timeline that you have really evolved into a capital allocator with lots of acquisitions. I'm sure you've learned a ton across these acquisitions. What have been the big lessons there? What have you learned from the first time you did it where you were green at doing it through to today? How have you evolved and improved? It's funny you say that because making money gives us the opportunity to organically acquire and also to lever and cost of capital is so cheap with a company that makes the type of money that we do. We can take strategic bets that way. Really, the biggest finding of all of that is as scale increases, the scale of the strategic decisions you make have to increase with it. And if anything, in hindsight, we've done a bunch of acquisitions, but the smaller they are, the tougher they are to deal with. They're just small by definition. Human psychology is that everyone's risk averse for the risk taking and size impacts the perception of risk. It's funny, like even in the public markets, people don't really look at market cap. They think a $4 stock is riskier than a $400 stock. Shares outstanding might be an important input into that formula, right? But there's these weird human psychological views that we have towards things and tend to lean us towards deploy less because you think the risk is lower. What we found, at least for us, and I think this is important for all businesses, is the bigger the scale, the more risk you have with distraction than you do with deployment of capital. The bigger the company, by definition, they probably have a lot more processes and success of their own. And so they can operate themselves forward with less distraction for whoever the acquirer was. So as we look out into the future, what is strategic for us will probably be software-centric. It's unlikely that we do smaller tuck-ins unless they're for team, or it's just a product that's going to naturally fit into another part of our stack and isn't going to be a distraction to the whole. Yeah, fascinating lesson. Less is more seems to be the case all the time. What are the big missing pieces in your strategic vision? What are the unaccomplished or unserved functions that you don't yet do for your customer that you think you will or want to do in, say, five years' time? The fun there, and maybe the main reason why I still like coming into work every day, or maybe my number one reason, is that it's unknown. We don't know. When we started the business, 
that we know that we'd be driving billions of app installs a year. We still would be a small percentage of the app store. Like we had no idea. It happens so quickly. It's hard to remember that little iPhone that we had in 2010. But this market is evolving really quick. As you think about just technology history, technology has been around for a while. In human history, it's a tiny fraction of our existence. But the evolution of these technologies and speed of innovation continues to accelerate because of the technologies that enable it to. And so we don't know where it's all going to go. But what we do know is it's fun to figure that out. That's why we talk about things like blockchain and NFT. Super out there. There's a lot of hype in that category right now. And cryptocurrency obviously is hyped as well. And everyone believes the next evolution of web has something to do with these components. No one really knows the answer yet as far as the utility goes at scale. Being able to figure that out, at least play a role in it and be a participant in that evolution are the things that really become exciting for someone like myself. I'm always interested by how and what entrepreneurs learn from other companies in adjacent spaces. And there's a couple of very famous companies in yours. And so I'd love to ask the same question about each, which is what have you learned from them? The first is Facebook. Facebook, I have most admiration for their advertising product. The way they brought it to market, I bought the stock when they went public and dropped because people didn't know. They didn't know if they go to mobile. They didn't know how they can monetize their audience. That team, just exceptional through and through, you knew they'd figure it out. And the implementation of the ad technology to make ads much more like content than an ad offering, that was them first. Really, no one had created anything that looked like that before. And the way they powered the whole app ecosystem with that product offering to grow was really compelling to me. And that's why I saw that and saw what technology could do. And really, that's what facilitated our move into games and to try to put the pieces together to do our share of that because it was just really compelling to someone like me. What about Google in contrast, the other monster? Google is a monster to find right. I don't know that we're at the point to even think about how to look at Google and compare and wonder what's interesting because it's just such a big company. Their tentacles are everywhere. The coolest thing that they've done is very, very wise acquisitions. If you look at the acquisitions in the spaces that matter to us, Android, obviously, maybe the world's best acquisition of all time. No one really talks about it being acquired by them. YouTube was bought for super cheap. I think they bought it for $1.4 billion, probably worth $200 billion today or something, right? Massive, massive payoff on that one. They bought AdMob and they bought DoubleClick. They put the ad stack together with those components, layering on the Salesforce, getting the mobile presence. So they've been very, very wise with their acquisitions. You don't hear much about their acquisitions. They make a lot of them. But the ones that have paid off have, have been game changers for them. What about the great game studios? I won't name one specifically. You said Supercell earlier. I've had Ilka on the show so people can listen to his mind and how he thinks about this. But what have you learned from the great gaming studios that you've worked with, acquired, seen operate? My mind is nothing like their minds. I'm much more focused on simple math and operational efficiency. The greatest game designers tend to be a mixture of artistic plus analytical minds and definitely skew very, very artistic. The stuff that Supercell has created to put those pieces together to build teams and small teams around what they built and the type of engagement that they can give the audience, that's not something I could ever concept, think about, learn. And I've seen some of these game development processes firsthand. It's just not part of the brain I have. That's where you look at an artist and you go, wow, I think the game designers, the really good ones are truly exceptional artists. And it's something to admire. I remember in my conversation with John Collison, one of the co-founders of Stripe, him making fun of investors like me who are constantly asking, what's your moat? What's your source of competitive advantage? What's compounding? How are you going to protect yourself against competitors? And his joke was like, geez, I'm just trying to like build a great product here and serve my customer. But as you get bigger, it does become an obligation to think about these sorts of things, defensibility and this concept of a moat and power in the business. How do you think about those things? And how is that evolved as the leader of a business where, yes, at first it was about succeeding in the first place. You've done that. Now it's about growing and continuing to serve this growing customer base, but doing so in a way that it's not easy for others just to come poach your customers, do the same thing you're doing, et cetera. How do you think about power, moats, competitive advantage, and so on? It's funny because my answer would have been similar. One of the things that people forget about is that great teams create their own advantages and can be competitive in complex marketplaces. A lot of the companies that we talk about, if they're worth an investment at a later stage, by definition, they had to have a great team. So team and caliber of team matters. In our business specifically, as we stand today, there's two things that become value drivers and give us that competitive edge. One is the max auction. 
where we're effectively of a user seeing an ad in a mobile app, we're probably majority of the time the called trading floor. And so if you own the trading floor, that's very strategically valuable where all the other players in the ecosystem we serve advertisements plug into our trading floor. They pay us to trade on that trading floor. And so we get a very large auction, one that has a lot of density and liquidity, and that gives us an advantage that hopefully will build on itself over time. That's one. The other one is giving something of value to your customers. And in our case, again, back to the advertising, the ad tech debate versus the software, is it advertising? The software side is it's very performance heavy. Advertisers who are buying on our platform they're getting results. They're only spending to get results. So they can't be poached. They have to spend the dollars on our platform in a continuous manner to maintain their growth. Now, what ends up happening and isn't well understood in performance advertising is there's also no budgetary constraint. It's not like they're exclusive advertisers to our platform. They'll work with every other platform in the market they can make work. But the amount of dollars that we get are defined only by the amount of success that the software can have matching up a consumer with their application within the boundaries of their goal, not defined by anything else. And so we've ended up delivering an automated, highly efficient product to our customers that they can't lose. If they lose, their growth rate will tank. That gives you competitive advantage as well. Once you're stuck in there, the technology is working, the data is really optimized to that level. It ends up very, very sticky and a forever item. One of the things you mentioned very early on is that you were sort of forced by virtue of the history to focus on profitability and self-sustainability as a business. And then there's always this tension of, should we spend more money and pay no taxes and effectively have no positive cash flows just to keep growing and keep capturing a market opportunity versus obviously more mature companies are very cash flow positive. They pay dividends, they buy back stock, they do other things. And there's this life cycle. How do you think about managing all of that, about this interesting contrast where most firms like yours would be stuffed with so much capital from investors that mandate would be grow at all costs and think about margin dynamics and some of these other things you've talked about less, <laughs> maybe a little less important. Where do you sit on that spectrum of producing free cash flow, even using your stock as currency? Like all of these things matter. What is your philosophy of the maturity of the business? And when you would start paying dividends or something like that, even if that's not in the near term future? I'd say I'm much more of a private equity guy than a venture cap guy. I think the reality is if you have unlimited cap pools of capital and you need to hire ahead of growth, there's a lot of risk that comes with that. You're diluting your IQ, you're diluting your talent, you're making it so your key people have less opportunity to grow. So there's just risk. Some companies, plenty of huge companies have executed scaling a business. So it's doable, but it's risky. For us, that was never the right approach. I think it was a few weeks ago, we announced a $750 million share buyback. And you don't tend to see companies that are one year off an IPO that are both growing at a strong rate, generating a lot of cash flow, and then also willing to repurpose that cash flow to buy back their own shares. All of that happening within first year after IPO. We look at it like there's a couple of bets that are wise for us to make. So long as our growth rate is as strong as it's been, that we can't spend the capital. So we're going to make money and we're going to make accelerating amounts of cash flow. We're going to have to pay tax and hopefully we're tax optimized. But what we will do with that is bet on ourselves and do buybacks. And why not? That's a good way to bet on yourself. And then secondarily, look for strategic avenues. The amount of capital that we're able to bring back into our bank account is quite substantial. And so that gives us a lot of flexibility as we think about strategic opportunities. If you think about your own career, especially the app loving portion of your career, in what ways have you most improved? If you compared yourself today to yourself in 2012 or something 10 years ago, what's the most different about how you behave or how you make decisions or you pick the category? I've gotten to the point of thinking bigger. Back then, I would have been happy with a 25, 50, $100 million business. You don't know what's possible. So your frame of mind is entirely different. You're really focused on First, you're paying the bills. And then second, okay, we're scaling. Just get through the months because it's hard and you just don't want the business to go away. But as an entrepreneur, and I assume this is shared, you go to bed every night worried about waking up the next day and having the business gone. And so that's what keeps you going. Now at the scale that we're at, I know that the business is going to be there, but the key question becomes, are the decisions I'm making today giving us a path to grow years from now? That's just a huge mindset shift that as you scale a business, I think every founder or executive has to get to. Otherwise, eventually, the law of big numbers catch up to you and you haven't taken enough good bets and you can't scramble fast enough. That was my biggest shift in terms of the way I look at the business. 
You shared one great acid test around this concept, which is the fact that making bigger acquisitions and maybe fewer of them might be a better way of doing this, right? Less distraction. It's perceived to be higher risk, but it's actually not because the things are more sophisticated and self-sustaining. If that's one version of the kind of decision that could lead to these bigger outcomes, are there other things that you've learned too, whether it's focus or making fewer decisions or what have you, what the other acid tests might be to satisfy what you just said? With our new initiatives too, when we think about new opportunities to deploy our team and we've got an exceptional product and engineering team, so we can deploy them against a lot of opportunities. When you narrow it in, I always come back to how big is the market? And that's something early stage investors also look at as critical. You don't want to execute on something great and something small. Big market opportunity five to 10 years from now, because even the mobile app ecosystem, no one knew what it was going to become. But do you believe there's going to be a big opportunity in the future? And then secondarily, is it utilizing some of the advantages we have in the marketplace? Blockchain and NFT, if we can execute on it, we work with tens of thousands of apps today. So there's a huge audience on the other side that can tap into a platform like this really quickly and accelerate the growth of it. Back to organic development. As we think about where to spend our time and resources, it has to be a huge opportunity and it has to be really closely aligned with what we have as strategic advantages in the market today. If I could somehow airlift in here the world's largest bear on the app loving stock, what do you think they'd say or what questions would they ask you that I haven't? In advertising, I think everyone's concern is privacy and platform changes. Today, our business is dependent on two platforms so that their rules can change. And obviously, we can't control that. We just have to navigate it. And privacy regulations globally are continuing to be in flux. So where do those go? Who knows? Now, I think where we are at now is at such a value-based level. If you look at our growth rate and you look at the cash flow generation on the most traditionally valued bearish markets, the multiple on cash flow is really low. That's why we facilitated a buyback. We look at that and go, this is a good opportunity. If people are negative, we're very positive about our business. The growth prospects are huge in this thing. And start taking back stock as much as we can get our hands on at this moment in time. Those clouds overhang every single app economy dependent business, as well as every single data dependent business. And we're both. But on the other hand, and this goes back to the not being able to raise capital, we generate so much cash and we've got such a high growth rate and great business prospects. You just adjust for those and you go, there's a lot of value in a business like this. People just have to understand it. What do you think are the most interesting trends going on around you and your business that doesn't even need to affect it? But again, I'm always interested with people that have grown up in an ecosystem that was very small at the start is now dominant and huge, even if we didn't foresee that. What you view as interesting that's happening around you today writ large in the world of digital? The coolest thing for me, at least, and maybe this is a selfish answer, because for me personally, is the app economy has built economies around the world. Some of our best partners come from Turkey, they come from Pakistan, they come from China, they come from regions in CIS, Western Europe, whatever, it's global. And that gives me access to minds and different backgrounds all over the world. As you start getting access to different cultures and different economies, their own base economies are entirely different than our US mature economy. You start seeing what drives people and you get innovation because you have variants of thought and variants of background. And we get the benefit of that. People forget not only is the app store global in nature, the consumer audience is a global one. The developers behind the app store are also global and globally building content even for the states. That's maybe the most fun aspect I've had in seeing this is truly there's a measurable impact on the economy for our business, not just in the States, but on a global nature. If you think about the notion of serving developers as a customer set, it's become you know an incredibly huge, growing, popular customer to have. Lots of API-based businesses, for example, in software have thrived serving just developers. And it seems like it's a very different audience than you typically would think of in a business. What have you learned about serving them and treating them well? So if you were backing somebody that was going to just sell their software product into developers, what would you teach them or tell them based on your experience? It's just a different type of sales approach. The developer themselves, you don't really talk about Uber as a developer anymore. Uber is an enterprise. And when you think about developer, you're thinking about smaller teams. Really, a lot of the people on the front lines on the other side who are doing business development or sales and marketing, like they might have engineering backgrounds. They might have built the first version of the product. It might even be the CEO. And when you're dealing with that type of person on the other side, there's no time for nonsense. It's like, let's just get to the point. Is there business to do or not? And so you have to compress the sell down and it has to be highly technical. 
and they have to understand the value proposition really quickly. And so the folks that I interface with still, if I have my BD hat on or our business development team interfaces with are extremely competent people. They're entrepreneurs, they're building businesses. In a large part of these developers, they are the executive team who's really driven by making this business work. They're working 17, 18 hours a day. So they expect the same on the other side. If you think about the eventual impact that you might have with other ad platforms, Facebook and Google and some of the other ad marketplaces or advertisers at large, that you keep expanding onto new screens, you keep being successful, and they become clear direct competitors versus these integrated collaborators that you described earlier. Do you think about that much? I think the ad ecosystem has become fragmented by design. I think those companies too, they could look at each other, right? Facebook, Google, Amazon have massive advertising businesses, but it's not a winner-take-all market. And that's been proven. Every data set's treated differently. What drives relevancy to the consumer across any ad opportunity is understanding that every single platform has a different offering to bring. And if it has a different offering, it needs to exist to deliver the best value to the consumer. And ours, we play in a niche. We play for the app developer. Google, Facebook, Amazon have their obvious offerings. Well, Twitter has a different offering. Snapchat has a different offering. ByteDance has a different one. You start putting all of these pieces together, you create much more relevancy to the consumer, which drives up the yields for the developer and the advertisers. By definition, at this point, I don't think we can ever look at advertising as a zero sum. Therefore, all companies at the large scale, the ones that have broken out to become multi-billion dollar ecosystems, will end up working together in some way or another. Adam, this has been incredibly fun. What an interesting business that's, I think, hiding in plain sight since everyone's probably interacted with it very often, maybe without knowing it. Really appreciate the interesting path that it's taken and you walking us through its history and its current state. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for having me here. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 